Hello again, and welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. This is episode 147, and we're going to have a lot of fun today, having some fun at the expense of the king of the world, James Cameron, auteur of Avatar, The Way of Water, and Titanic, 3D, 4K, WTF, which I happened to screen recently in the company of 11-year-olds, which is part of a revelation that I had regarding James Cameron. So I want to talk a little bit about Avatar The Way of Water. I want to talk a little bit about, a little bit more about Titanic, which was kind of interesting to revisit. And then I want to recommend a podcast I've been trying to remember to recommend on several tapings that I've done recently. I want to talk about the Bob Lefsetz podcast and why you should be listening to it. So I'm going to spend a little time talking about that. And that's going to be it. It's going to be quick today. So let's get to it. Okay, so getting back to the world of James Cameron, how did this come about? Well, a few weeks ago, I was looking for something to do with my daughter and, you know, big fan of going to the movies and I hadn't seen Avatar The Way of the Water, and I, I've been making it a mission this year to try and get through all of the Best Picture nominees. So, given that there wasn't much out appropriate for her, uh, I thought, all right, let's go see this thing. Let me see. What's the running time? I mean, it's got to be three hours and something. Two hours. Uh, let's see. It's three hours and 12 minutes long. Three hours and 12 minutes long. Wow. That's the first thing. I understand that a James Cameron movie is about a technical exercise in film advancement. It's every film furthers the, the science and the technology of filmmaking in ways that I presume is important for the making of other films that perhaps have more going for them than some of the James Cameron films. However... In service of the technical exercise in film advancement, what we have here, and, I, and again, I don't take any great pleasure. I don't, I don't try to do episodes out of pure negativity. But it is, I guess, not surprising and surprising to me that James Cameron has three of the top four highest grossing films of all time. And if you look at what they are, the first and the highest grossing film of all time is the 2009 Avatar with a lifetime gross of $2.9 billion, with a B, dollars. The third highest grossing film of all time is the current Avatar, The Way of Water, $2.2 billion. And the fourth highest grossing film of all time is Titanic, $2.2 billion from 1997. So you have a cumulative, what, eight million, eight billion in box office uh, just from those three films alone. The film in the second spot is Avengers Endgame with two point seven billion dollars. And then the film in the fifth spot is Star Wars Episode seven, The Force Awakens, two billion dollars. If I look at this list of the highest grossing films of all time, I'm trying to look down this list and and see where the first good film is the first film that i would say that's a good film not even a great film that's a good film one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven uh, in 12th place top gun maverick is the first good film on this list that's the first good film the top 10 are avatar avengers endgame avatar way of water titanic Star Wars Force Awakens, Avengers Infinity War, Spider-Man No Way Home, Jurassic World from 2015, Lion, The Lion King from 2019, The Avengers from 2012, Furious 7, 
and Top Gun Maverick in 12th place with $1.4 billion. To me, number 12 is the first good film. Are there good films in the bottom 10? Mm. Not really. Now, again, who equates box office with quality? Certainly not me, but I think it's just... I guess it's worthy to remember what we des- what we reward. And when we get upset about bad movies, let's remember what we reward and what that means that we get. So Avatar The Way of Water, all three hours and 12 minutes of it. It's poorly written. It's poorly acted. It is over long. It's emotionally unengaging. There's a lack of joy. There's a lack of any feeling or concern. There's no end to the character's the main characters that are voiced by humans because I don't know why, because of the bad writing, because of the bad acting, most likely. I think the most engaging character, the one I, the character I cared the most about is this like whale sea creature that one of the characters bonds with towards the end. I can't remember what they called a Tolkoon or something. You're a Tolkoon. You saved my life. Thank you. Thank you. Buddy, I have no idea what you just said. They hurt you, didn't they? I felt for that sort of sad-eyed sea creature far more than I cared about what happened to any of the cat or fish people in this film. There's just, a, there's just a lack of engagement with the technical exercise that it represents, as, as wondrous as I suppose that is. Having said all that, my 11-year-old daughter liked it a lot. When we were sitting, waiting for the Titanic to start, which she also attended, I'll tell you that story in a minute, I inadvertently mentioned Avatar The Way of Water as being terrible. And she sort of turned and she said, no, it wasn't. So I think James Cameron's audience can safely be ascribed to the 11 to 12 year old purview and worldview. That seems to be the sweet spot. If you're a little bit older than that, you probably start to have critical faculties, which might get in the way of your enjoyment. But you can't argue with the business, can you? There were some anecdotes I read about James Cameron telling off a Disney executive. I want to try and find that because I thought it was pretty funny. As I mentioned, it was three hours and 12 minutes. This is an article from MovieWeb that had a few of these details that I thought was brilliant. Cameron says, does not matter when audiences take a bathroom break over the 192 minute runtime because they can see the movie a second time to find out where it, what they missed? Sure. This is from a Variety article from uh, November 21st, 2022 by Zach Scharf. And he's talking about the 2009 Avatar. And how at the time, a 20th Century Fox executive saw a screening of Avatar and approached Cameron with, quote, a stricken cancer diagnosis expression, end quote, and and asked Cameron that he simply had to cut the running time. It was 162 minutes, a, a brief two hours and what? Two hours and 42 minutes. That is, I mean, this executive should have been happy with that as a James Cameron running time, but he wasn't. Presumably it was a he. Uh, It is a he. He says he. And he begged Cameron to make some cuts. Here's the quote. I've said something to him I've never said to anyone else in the movie business, Cameron said. Revealing that he told the exec the following statement, quote, I think this movie is going to make all the fucking money. And when it does, it's going to be too late for you to love the film. The time for you to love the movie is today. So I'm not asking you to say something that you don't feel, but just know that I will always know that no matter how complimentary you are about the movie in the future, when it makes the mo- makes all the money. Just know that I will always know that no matter how complimentary you are about the movie in the future, when it makes all the money. Sorry, I, I misrepresented James's syntax. He continues, quote, and that's exactly what I said in caps, all the money, not some of the money, all the fucking money, Cameron continued. I said, you can't come back to me and compliment the film or chum along and say, look what we did together. You won't be able to do that. Quote, I told him to get the fuck out of my office. And that's where it was left. Cameron's temper, by the way, one of the more famous ones in Hollywood. 
what's really funny is at the end of this article, which is kind of ostensibly about the new Avatar way of water running 30 minutes longer, is he says about Avatar the way of water, quote, the goal is to tell an extremely compelling story on an emotional basis. I would say the emphasis in the new film is more on character, more on story, more on relationships, more on emotion, end quote, to which I would say, what? <laughs> Are you serious? Anyway, if you've seen Avatar The Way of Water, maybe you're blown away by it. Maybe you're captivated by the world building. I'm just hoping that the Disney fly Avatar ride is is worth it um, after seeing that. So anyway, that led a few weeks later to my daughter wanting to go to the movies with a friend of hers who's also 11. And as we were contemplating what to go to, I... <laughs> being me, suggested that I take these two 11-year-old girls to see Megan, which is PG-13. And I figured, they're 11, but an 11, but 11-year-olds in New York City are basically like 18-year-olds maybe in the middle of the country. So I didn't think there was going to be anything in Megan that would terrify them. I thought they might like it, that type of a social satire. So I suggested this to my daughter's friend's uh, mother who quickly shot back. Oh, no, no, no. She'd be terrified to see that. Okay. Next up, I noticed that Titanic has been released in 4K 3D. And now this is something I wasn't sure that these two 11-year-old girls would appreciate, but it turns out, boy, did they. They loved it. Again, the James Cameron sweet spot being probably the intellectual shelf of around 11 or 12 years old. For my wife and I, who accompanied them, it was like taking a time machine back to 1997. <laughs> it was it's so bizarre to revisit how big this movie was in the pop cultural consciousness of the time. And living in New York City at the time, Leonardo DiCaprio and his posse were running rampant in page six and, and just creating havoc as a bunch of horny 20-year-olds smitten with fame and good looks. So that was kind of a thing. And the movie was such an event, you know, uh, it, I was reminded in reading a little bit about it, that it was a phenomenon for people to go see this movie many times, which is so almost poignant now. Like, does that even, that doesn't even happen anymore. It's like waiting in line at Barnes and Noble for the latest Harry Potter book. Another thing that happened a lot then. So Titanic, much like Avatar, it's kind of comedically credited as it's directed, written, produced, and co-edited by James Cameron. Titanic, at the time it was made, it was the most expensive film ever made, costing what the studio admits is around $200 million, who knows, probably another almost $300 million in marketing costs, I would imagine. And in 2012, they re-released a 3D version, which I missed in 2012, to commemorate the centennial of the Titanic sinking. So my daughter's friend, who would be apparently too terrified to sit through Megan, um, it's okay to sit through the Titanic where, you know, everyone dies. So we go to Titanic and, you know, how long is Titanic? Uh, let's see. Titanic running time. I want to say it's shorter than Avatar, right? Oh, three hours and 16 minutes. So, just a smidge shorter than Avatar Way of Water, right? So anyway, we go into Titanic, and again, it's in 4K now. It, it looks good. It's a very good-looking print of the film. I'm not a big 3D fan, but I have to admit, 3D did work very well. I don't think it, of course, it wasn't shot in 3D originally, so they must have some process to re-3D it in 2012. Uh, but this is a 4K re-release of the film. Looks quite good. Here are a few reactions that I had to the making of the film. Again, the writing. I can best quote the Los Angeles Times film uh, icon, Kenneth Turin. He wrote of uh, in his pan review, actually one of the few full-on pan reviews of Titanic. It actually got fairly decent reviews because, again, I think it was so epic and sweeping and over the top that even people like Roger Ebert appreciated it for this spectacle that it was that it contained some of the old grandeur of, the, of Hollywood that had been missing. 
And even if they would have, you know, carped at things like the clumsy ham-handed dialogue and, and the completely stereotypical sort of setting and pacing of scenes, I think that the overall scope and, and attempted reach meant something to people whose lives had been tied up in thinking about films, but Kenneth Turn was not one of them. He wisely wrote, quote, Cameron has regularly come up with his own scripts in the past, but in a better world, someone would have had the nerve to tell him, or he would have realized himself, that creating a movie and creditable love story is a different order of business from coming up with wisecracks for Arnold Schwarzenegger, end quote. He continues, quote, instead, what audiences end up with is word what end up with word wise is a hackneyed, completely derivative copy of old Hollywood romances, a movie that reeks of phoniness and lacks even minimal originality. Worse than that, many of the characters are cliches of such purity they ought to be exhibited in film schools as examples of how not to write for the screen, end quote. So... The one thing that that Turn does acknowledge is that after a couple of hours of the film has passed, the movie does take shape in the hour and a half it spends with the sinking of the ship. Uh, That part really, really works. And for me as well, almost sleeping through the somnambulant romance, quote unquote, was this really a romance that captured the world? There is zero chemistry, zero between... Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. Zero. He was 21 years old. He looks like a boy. I mean, it's just, it's comical. Listen to him in this scene. This is, you know, he saves her life. She's going to commit suicide. I mean, it's just so histrionic, but she's going to commit suicide because of her, her, her intended marriage to Billy Zane, who chews his way through uh, oodles of Titanic printed China and decking as the cad i mean he's one of the stereotypical characters that's hilarious but listen to leonardo in this scene it's ludicrous that he is presented as an artist number one he's a vagabond parisian you know residing artist of the world like he's none of those things i was reading i'll tell you a little bit about the alternative casting in a bit um there is one person that cameron really wanted for this role that I think could have played that could have pulled that off and maybe would have been interesting. But anyway, here's a little bit of Leo before we talk a little more about him. This is the scene after he saves Rose's life. His reward as a third class passenger is to be invited to the first class dinner. Here's some of the witty repartee written by James Cameron and acted by his cast. And where exactly do you live, Mr. Dawson? Well, right now, my address is the RMS Titanic. After that, I'm on God's good humor. And how is it you have means to travel? I work my way from place to place. You know, tramp steamers and such. But I won my ticket on Titanic here at a lucky-handed poker. Tramp steamers and such. You know, how people talk. A very lucky hand. Mm. He won it playing poker with his fellow six-year-old boy friends. All life is a game of luck. All life is a game of luck, say I, stuffed shirt. Mm. A real man makes his own luck, Archie. Oh, yes, Daddy. And you find that sort of rootless existence appealing, do you? Well, yes, ma'am, I do. I mean, got everything I need right here with me. Got air in my lungs and a few blank sheets of paper. I mean, I love waking up in the morning not knowing what's going to happen or... Who I'm going to meet, where I'm going to wind up. Just the other night, I was sleeping under a bridge, and now here I am on the grandest ship in the world having champagne with you fine people. <laughs> I'll take some of that. As a scene, it's just so hackneyed and clumsy and terribly acted. At this point in his life, Leonardo DiCaprio was not an actor. What he was, and make no mistake, he was a full-blown movie star in this movie movie star big time old school don't make them like that anymore hollywood movie star you can't take your eyes off of him and he's terrible (laughs) so the charisma is there this indefinable essence of what makes a star 
it's not just looks. There's something else. There's something, I mean, not to get metaphysical, there's something about certain people and the way they react to a camera, the way that their their physical being is is photographed, how it looks when it's photographed, that's beyond whether they're intriguing looking or good looking or pretty or handsome or beautiful. And it's something beyond talent, as we can see here, because the talent is not yet on display. You know, almost, what, 30 years later, we can see his performance in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And wow, that's an incredible, incredible acting performance. You know, the scene when he's shooting uh, the old Western with the little girl is so brilliant. And, and Leonardo brings so much to it that over time he has accumulated the skills, if not yet the gravitas of appearing like a grown man. Now, I don't know, or I could speculate. He was just most recently in the news for squiring a 19-year-old model. I think he's like 48 years old. You know, does that have something to do with this sense of arrested development that still kind of permeates his characterizations? I don't know. Part of the reason why he's so perfect as Rick fucking Dalton in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that there's a sense that he's not quite grown up. And that works for that role. I'll be curious to see the forthcoming Martin Scorsese adaptation, Killers of the Osage Moon, where I think he plays an FBI agent embroiled in some Native American killings. So I'm a big fan now. But when you look at him in Titanic and you watch this performance, it is hard not to laugh. And he and Kate Winslet, I mean, it's incredible. Here you are casting a movie that James Cameron considers to be one of the epic romances of all time. I don't, do you guys consider it that? Maybe it is considered that. I don't know. It's just, they have, they could not have less chemistry, honestly. So let me see the alternative. Let's talk a little about the alternative casting. Let me, let me put that one back. Playing my, my sound drops again. So when Cameron was casting Rose DeWitt Bukater, that's her name. Rose DeWitt Bukater, Bukater, B-U-K-A-T-E-R. Rose DeWitt Bukater, Bukater. I have no idea. I don't know why you would use that as a last name, as a writer. Rose is supposed to be 17 years old in the film. Actresses considered for the role, Gwyneth Paltrow, Winona Ryder, Claire Danes, Gabrielle Anwar, and Reese Witherspoon, who apparently all turned it down. But Winslet campaigned heavily for the role. According to Wikipedia, she sent Cameron daily notes. Uh, she sent him a single rose from your rose, called him by phone and said, you don't understand. I am Rose. I don't even know why you're seeing anyone else. Eventually, Cameron was convinced and cast her. There's an anecdote that when um, she did a screen test with DiCaprio and she said to Cameron, he's great. If you don't, even if you don't pick me, pick him. So she certainly had an eye for who a movie star was. And DiCaprio, who, again, I said was about 21 years old when he, when he got this role. This is what Cameron said he needed the cast to feel in Jack Dawson. First of all, Jack Dawson, like as a name, okay? Let's say you're writing names for film characters. And in your mind, you're James Cameron. So you're writing the most epic male part of the most epic romantic pairing that will ever underscore bold two exclamation points be put on film. Hmm. What am I going to call him? What am I going to call him? How about Jack Dawson? The most nondescript, nothing bucket of a name. And Rose DeWitt Bukater. What, what is going on? This is what I'm saying. <laughs> it's so weird. You know how I always say weird is good. Some of the stuff is almost so weird as to be good. Anyway, Cameron says that the audience needed to feel they were on the Titanic through Jack Dawson. He wanted them to, quote, take that energy, give it to Jack, an artist who is able to have his heart soar. Okay. Um, the original choice, and this is actually pretty interesting. There's a couple interesting what ifs here. This is one of them. Cameron's original choice for Jack Dawson was River Phoenix. 
Uh, But, of course, he tragically died in 1993. Now, when you start thinking in your mind about River Phoenix as Jack Dawson, okay, that would have worked. That would have worked. I would have believed River Phoenix as an artist. I would have believed River Phoenix as a bohemian vagabond man of the world. River Phoenix possessed a quality of wisdom and age far beyond his years, even as a very, very young person. Even as a child actor, he possessed that. Right? Isn't that the whole reason for his casting in Stand By Me? I mean, he possessed an otherworldly worldliness. And I think Leonard, I think that River Phoenix and Kate Winslet together would have been fascinating. However, tragically, he died in 1993. So some other actors that were considered, and again, whenever you hear lists of who are considered, that just means who, who gets every script within this finite year that the script is going around. Whose box office in the year we're talking about. Matthew McConaughey, Chris O'Donnell, Billy Crudup, and Stephen Dorff. Could you imagine Stephen Dorff opposite Kate Winslet? But Cameron felt they were all too old to play a 20-year-old. Tom Cruise was interested, but his asking price was too high. Tom Cruise is Jack Dawson. It certainly has some of the Cruise role elements, doesn't it? That uh, chip on his shoulder, down on his luck, but driven. That could have been interesting. Cameron also considered Jared Leto, but Leto, being Jared Leto, refused to audition. I'm not auditioning for that. I'm an artist. Jeremy Sisto did a bunch of screen tests with Winslet and some other actresses who were going to play the role of Rose. It sounds like he got pretty close. Jeremy Sisto is funny because it's probably he's probably an actor who on the tests perfectly in, embodied the role and could do it at the time. But he's Jeremy Sisto. He wasn't a star. Now, DiCaprio wasn't really a star yet either, but again, once you put him on camera, it's you realize that you have lightning in a bottle. Uh, but apparently he wanted to do, of course, actorly things with the role. Cameron references that he wanted him to have a tick or a limp uh, and other things. That I think would have been interesting, actually. Yeah. Anyway, he casts Leonardo DiCaprio and a star is born. I mean, it's it became a global phenomena. He became a global phenomena of the sort, frankly, he's lucky to have survived. That's the level of fame if you were alive and, and cognizant of the time. It is impressive that Leonardo survived this. Not many people do. Now, the other piece of casting I have to address, and again, this is all, I'm breaking all of my caveats here. All the th- I mean, all of my, um, my deeply held podcasting beliefs, because the other sort of howlingly laughable construct in this film is this wraparound device featuring Bill Paxton as Brock Lovett. Again, the names here are straight out of a 1920s pulp magazine. Like all the names are like the first name that you jot down and then you think, I'm going to go back and find a better name later, but you just never get to it. So then you have Brock Lovett, Lizzie Calvert, Fabrizio, Rose Dawson, Ruth DeWitt Bukater, Caledon Hockley. These are the names. Anyway, so you have young Rose, you have old Rose. This ridiculous framing device with Bill Paxton is Brock Lovett. He's a treasure hunter. He's looking for a, a priceless necklace rumored to be lost in the, the, the wreckage of the Titanic. I completely forgot all of this stuff in the ensuing you know, 20, 30 years, but it comes back to you when you're sitting there watching this in 4K 3D. Poor Bill Paxton. Also, may he rest in peace. He just, he's so miscast in this. He, he's so not, he's so not what you, what you really want. He's got this bad hair dye. He started trying to be this very ne'er-do-well, you know, you know who would have been perfect? Like a Don Johnson. That's what you need. You need like a little subversively sleaziness. And you just don't have that in Bill Paxton. So this whole device where we meet uh, Gloria Stewart, 86-year-old Gloria Stewart playing 100-year-old Rose. I hate to say this because she's now, of course, passed on. And this was a nice moment for her. 
at the end of her career, she had a very nice little, what do you want to call it? A victory lap. You know, this is, this is a woman who was born in 1910. So she would have been two years old when the Titanic sank in 1912. But from 1997 on to the end of her life, she had a wonderful little victory lap that the Titanic allowed her to have. And it was, she was able to, she, she was nominated for a Golden Globe. She was nominated for an Academy Award. She, she got to go to the Academy Awards again. She, she got a Screen Actors Guild Award. She was in People Magazine. She had an auto, she wrote an autobiography. She performed at the Hollywood Bowl, like, she had a nice little end of career run of appreciation, which is great for someone who was a star in the 20s and the 30s uh, and beyond. However, and this is where I feel terrible saying this, but we have to look at a movie objectively. She's just not at all up to the acting required for the part. And unlike Leonardo DiCaprio, who is not at all up to the acting required for his part, he... She is not a scintillating, can't take your eyes off of her screen presence. And so the, the dialogue is so shaky and she is not believable at all, despite what Cameron says, as a, as a connective tissue to Kate Winslet. Like, I know it's very difficult to have young and the older version in the same movie. Nobody wants to see Kate Winslet in the old age makeup. It's, it, I get that. My God, Gloria. She just wasn't up to it. I mean, she just, she wasn't up to it. And there's, it's this Cameronian thing where I guess, I guess the acting just isn't that important. I don't know. I don't know what it is. All the Bill Paxton stuff on the sub where they're like shooting, the footage is incredible. Okay. The, the one aspect of the wraparound stuff that is incredible is the footage of the Titanic, which we had never seen footage like that until this came out. That's part of why this was such a big deal. Nowadays, you know, the technology is such that this is not as surprising a thing to have to go see anymore. But at the time, these beautifully composed moving shots of inside and exteriors of the actual wreck of the Titanic was something really, really incredible to see. And that part of the wraparound stuff is fine. It's the Bill Paxton stuff and this kind of very 90s pseudo ironically detached fake bro style of dialogue, which is so unrealistic, but is so common to so many 90s action films. It's a kind of Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer posed machismo. It feels false. It felt false even then, and it feels really false now. And all that stuff just does not work at all. So, man, the funny thing was, I mentioned that this friend of my daughter's came with us. This is the friend who was apparently going to be too terrified to see Megan, Scary Doll, PG-13 film, but was not going to be too scared to see Titanic, which, of course... Oh, and also I forgot to mention when I mentioned to her mother that we're going to go to the movies and mentioned, and I said, well, what about the Titanic? She said, oh, that'd be great. We just went to a huge Titanic exhibit. She knows all about it. Okay, great. Well, we get through the first two hours of the movie, which is what you have to get through to get to the Titanic sinking, by the way. Two hours. Now you might ask yourself, two hours of what? Can you tell me what? Because I can't tell you. And I just saw it two weeks ago. Two hours of the romance of Rose and Jack. Two hours of, um, I don't remember. Nothing important. It's kind of like Avatar Way of Water starts with an hour and a half reset of where we are, what happened before you get to the water. There's no water in Avatar The Way of Water until about an hour and 45 minutes into the movie. Then we get to this new undersea aquatic wonder world. Similarly in Titanic, it's very, very tough to get through the first two hours. Once the ship starts sinking, however, now you are in the hands of an absolute cinematic master and you are watching something that only Cameron could have had the audacity and the juice to stage. I mean, you're talking about someone who built an exact replica of the Titanic in a 50 you know, billion gallon tank 
a horizon tank in Mexico. You know, he did things that were and are astounding to watch when the ship goes down. And that part of it is phenomenal. And I think, and I guess that's the part I thought that would be the part that people would have gone back to see. However, in looking into this a little bit, it turns out that seeing the film successively back in 1997 was driven by Leo mania. Do you remember Leo mania? That was a thing. DiCaprio rejected the Mark Wahlberg role in Boogie Nights. He chose to be in the Titanic and it made him a global box office superstar, which people say is was comp, the fame was comparable to Beatlemania in the 60s. The film won 11 Academy Awards, which I think is still the most for any film. Leomania apparently drove much of the repeat viewing. This is brilliant. There's a statistic here. So they said that the normal repeat viewing rate for a blockbuster theatrical film is about 5%. So 5% of people that go to a huge blockbuster, you know, middle brow popular film, 5% will go and see it again. But the repeat rate for Titanic was over 20%. 20% went and saw it again. And I think that was because of the spectacle. But maybe I'm mislabeling the, the Leo source. There's a thing here. Apparently young women drove the repeat viewing. There's some credit. It's like... 20% of the re- 25% of the repeat viewers uh, were girls 17 and under or something. So maybe it had a lot to do with the repeat viewing, but man, it's pretty tough. Another thing that I forgot, and probably you did too, I'm going to presume this is a thing. It's in Wikipedia. Apparently it was a thing at the time that it was known that Titanic made guys cry unlike any other film. <laughs> now, I don't know when, like, I'm, I'm a pretty easy cry in a movie, to be honest with you. Like, if, if, if this, even in something like the Titanic, like, if, if there was a believable love story and believable actors here, I would probably be caught up in the moment and I could probably shed a tear. But I can tell you, I sat there steely-eyed and defiantly munching on, you know, popcorn, uh, and red vines rather than shedding any tears. But apparently it was famous at the time for being a movie where, uh, quote, men could admire Jack's sense of adventure and his ambitious behavior. And that contributed to their emotional attachment to Jack Dawson. Apparently the film's ability to make men cry was parodied in the 2009 film Zombieland, where Woody Harrelson Recalling the death of his young son, young son states, I haven't cried like that since Titanic. Was that a thing? Does anyone remember that? I don't remember crying at the Titanic. It is hard for men to cry at movies. I do understand that. I have a, I have a good friend uh, who always told me the story of, do you remember the Robert De Niro? Uh, I think it's a, a Vietnam vet film, Jackknife with De Niro. It, it was, it's a famously a tearjerker. And he went to see it at York Square Cinemas in New Haven, Connecticut, our hometown, with our friend Robert. And these are two guys, they were teenagers at the time, and they're sitting in this movie, and it's so emotional, and it's such a tearjerker that they're both crying, but they're guys, and they're teenagers, and it's, you know, the 80s. And so being hung up on that, Buck always tells this funny story of kind of looking over the side of his his eyes to see, like, if Robert noticed that he was crying because he would, he wanted to hide it from Robert. And when he looked over, he saw Robert just engaged in like a full body racking sob. <laughs> so they were both crying. So apparently if you were a man in 1997 and you needed to, to let it out, you went and saw the Titanic, although I have no memory of that. Oh, here's the quote. Fox 20th century Fox estimated that 7% of American teenage girls had seen the Titanic twice by the fifth week of its release. 7% of American teenage girls had seen the Titanic twice by the fifth week. So there you go. Okay. So anyway, um, here's another weird thing I found. Now you're familiar. I'm going to play this for you a little bit. One of the things that we were making fun of is the ending of the film um, <laughs> Gloria Stewart. Okay, so you know the end of the movie. She she's back. Um, 
she goes to the balcony and she reveals that she has the necklace. Listen to this bizarre sound. This is the sound she makes as she drops it. Why? Sorry, we're just cutting back to Rose, finding it in her pocket. Listen to this bizarre sound. Oh, I talked over it. Let me put it again. Okay. Did you hear that? Let me play that one more time. Listen. Okay, let's say you're James Cameron, and you've just directed a $200 million epic, and you are filming the most important scene of the film in terms of the narrative and the love story and the romance that you've spent so much time on, three hours and seven minutes to this point. This is the point where your character is going to do this incredible thing, which is throw away, you know, a necklace worth $50 million into the ocean. For what reason? I don't really know. To return it to the wreck of the Titanic. I mean, the idea that she would have had this for 80 years or something and never have cashed it in is so ludicrous as to be unbelievable. But again, we're watching the Titanic is written by James Cameron, but just say that you, you've accepted all that and you're standing there and you're filming this scene with Gloria Stewart, who isn't just some woman you found in a nursing home. I mean, she's a, a person who has a you know 80 year history in Hollywood. And this is the sound she makes when throwing the necklace over the ship. You don't yell cut and just like do a retake. Hey, Gloria, you know, you made an interesting sound there. I'm not quite sure that's what I was looking for. Maybe something a little more expressive, a little more emotional. But no, that lives forever. <laughs> it's so ludicrous to me. I cannot believe that's in the movie. So anyway, she throws it. It sinks to the bottom, and then, of course, she goes to her bed, and then we see the photos, and then she is in a dream sequence where Victor Garber is in a tuxedo, and there comes Jack and his suspenders, and young Rose and Jack kiss and swirl, and ever the passengers applaud, and they're reunited in death. Okay? There's an alternative ending, which I never knew about. Okay? Now, in this alternative ending, it starts exactly the same way, you have her going out to the poop deck, uh, but then you have her granddaughter, who's played by, I gotta forget her name. What's the name of the actress who plays the granddaughter? Whew, tough memory, Jace. Susie Amos. She's pretty good, doesn't get much to do. Anyway, Susie Amos is sort of sitting with Bill. Oh my God. <laughs> Bill Paxton oh my God. notices her grandmother Jesus. and they think she's going to commit suicide. She's standing on the, the edge, just like she was that night when Jack Dawson saved her life. They race down. They scare the hell out of Nana in real life. They race down and scare the hell out of her enough where if you had like a 96 or 100 year old woman, you'd probably not want to make loud noises and run at her when she's perched on the back of a giant research ship in the middle of the North Atlantic, but that's what they do. Don't come any closer. I'll drop it. Now, okay, she holds up the necklace. Don't come any closer. I'll drop it. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Why would be the first question. Why? Um, but okay. Bill Paxton is the entire time. driven mad by the idea of this priceless gem. His help. His help. Somehow, I made it without his help. Oh, selling it. This, so is the, rich. this is one thing I like about this scene is it actually explains why she didn't. The hardest part about being so poor was being so rich. That's actually a pretty good line. 
the hardest part about being so poor was being so rich. In her life after the Titanic, she struggled, but she had this thing that she wouldn't sell. I actually think that's a really good line. But every time I thought about selling it, I thought of Cal. And somehow I made it without his help. I like that too. Cal is the cad, rich guy antagonist. And I guess to sell it and to live off the proceeds would be to admit that she needed him. Again, this is a nifty bit of screenwriting that I actually like in this otherwise soon-to-be ludicrous alternative ending. Shit. Look, Rose, I don't know what to say to a woman who tries to jump off the Titanic when it's not sinking and then jumps back on when it is. Did you follow that? <laughs> I, uh, let's just hear that again. Jump off the Titanic when it's not sinking and then jumps back on when it is. <laughs> Dealing with logic here, I know that. But you can say that again, Bill. Please, think about this for a second. Oh, I've thought about this for years. And I've come all the way here to put it back where it belongs. Wait. Okay, so again, another thing that's weird about this scene, you can find this on YouTube, and I'll, I'll put a link to this in the um, podcast episode bio. One of the things is it's done with ADR, so additional dialogue recording after the fact, and... Because of that, it, the, the words are not even connected to her performance, which is probably what's not helping her here. I don't know if they couldn't get a good recording of her voice in the live environment of the, the, the poop deck here or what. But the fact that it's dubbed after the fact does not help Gloria Stewart. So anyway, she's going to throw this priceless $50 million necklace back into the ocean. Just let me hold it in my hand, please. He's talking about the necklace, of course. Get your minds out of the gutter. So he wants to hold the necklace, which she allows him to do. And he has a bit of Lord of the Rings-esque, my precious. He doesn't want to let it go. He clutches it. Only life is priceless. And making each day count. Platitudes of the most Hallmark card variety are exchanged. And again, extraordinarily, he's going to use the squeak. Wait for it. It's coming. Here comes the squeak. <laughs> now, I want to really get granular here. The visual accompanying the squeak is a better match because she's kind of laughing at Bill Paxton, who wants to possess the jewel. And when she throws it overboard, she tosses her head back, and it's kind of a devil-may-care, ha! Huh. It actually works better. It doesn't feel as jarring a sound, but they, they clearly kept the sound and laid it over the shot in the ending that they used, which is, uh, it's the back of her head when she makes the weird squeak in the ending that they use. Now, the other ludicrous thing here, these guys have spent years mapping the ocean to find exactly where they are, okay? They know every inch of the, the seafloor. They have submarines. They've, that really sucks, lady! They've plotted it out. She drops it overboard, and everyone is so distraught that it's gone forever. You could just get into the sub, the mini sub, and go down and get it tomorrow. Like, where's it going to go? It's going to go straight to the bottom. The, the ship is not moving, by the way. They are anchored over the wreck. So at, at the worst case, I mean, you might have to go, you know, fumble around with the robotic arms to get it. But it's not actually gone forever. If I was Bill Paxson, once the old lady dies in, my, in her birth later on in this scene... I would simply get in my little robotic submarine and go down to the bottom of the ocean and grab this $50 million necklace and cash that shit in. He's now laughing. They're all laughing at the absurdity. This. Would you like to dance? He asks Susie Amos. If she'd like to dance, and they dance under the adoring gaze of, of Old Rose, who looks up, and just like in the original, a shooting star represents Jack. I believe we have the music of Ray Vaughn Williams tempt in here. 
she goes down and she similarly dies, but there is no reunion with Jack. And we have the faded dulcet tones of Celine about to come in. So that's the alternative ending. And let me tell you something. I prefer it. The whole movie is so ludicrous that this ending is not any more ludicrous than anything else in this wraparound portion of the film. And in fact, I think it more neatly addresses some of the loose strands of the the plot, such as it is. And most importantly, it justifies the squeak, which is what I'm left really hoping to have justified when I watch the Titanic again. So I'll put a link to that in the bio of the episode so you can check it out. That's the alternative ending. Oh, and one final postscript, that friend of my daughter's who was going to be too afraid to sit through Megan, but wasn't going to be too afraid to sit through Titanic. Well, once the ship started going down, she became terrified and she would lean over my daughter and say, Jason, is he going to die? About Jack Dawson. And I would say, they're all going to die. And she spent the end of the movie sitting on a couch outside in the lobby. So told you Megan would have been better. Okay, I want to wrap this up with a recommendation. You've heard me mention on the pod a couple of times, the music business writer, Bob Lefsetz. He writes a newsletter that you can sign up for. And once or twice or three times a week, he sends out an email newsletter. And it's usually about a topic of du jour, typically relating to the music business, but it can also cover books that he's read, series or movies that he's screened, certainly music business things and events. Right now, we're, we're in the midst of another sort of moment of outrage about Ticketmaster and the Springsteen tickets and the Taylor Swift tickets. He'll write about things like that. And then he'll have guests on who frequently are late career uh, guests who do career and life spanning, you know, two and a half hour interviews with him. And they're just fascinating. And they're, they're people that I always have this experience with his podcast where I'll see that someone's on the podcast who I'm not that interested in. For example, what remember Howard Jones from the 80s? What is love? Things can only get better. No one is to blame. Howard Jones, remember him? Synth pop Howard Jones. Well, come to find out the Howard Jones episode is so fascinating. And the... The, the, the ways and the means of a musical career and the things that happen, the things that don't happen, there's, there, he's catching people at the right moment when they're reflecting back. So I played, I play all of these. He had, he had Winona Judd on, which is a fascinating episode, talking about the death of her mother, her struggles, Linda Ronstadt, Bonnie Raitt, Alan Parsons gave a sort of Sometimes these people are not cooperative. I thought Alan Parsons was a little unnecessarily persnickety with Bob. Marcus King, who's sort of a Southern guitarist, singer, songwriter, incredibly uh, raw interview about his upbringing, his substance abuse, difficulties. I mean, on and on. You can, you can scan through these. Daryl Hall, Hall and Oates, fascinating. Uh, Jim Kerr from Simple Minds, like a lot of people from kind of the same era that, that I feature here on the podcast, which is I think you might like it because John Fogarty, I mean, I like the I like the career look back because there's often so much wisdom that people have, even when they come from industries different than your own and creative people talking about their personal and business struggles and successes is always fascinating. He, he has an he, this is a great example he has a, an episode out right now with the lead singer and songwriter of a band called Shinedown. His name is Brent Smith. Now, I never heard of Shinedown. So I Google Shinedown and I look at some of these videos and the, you know, the visuals are a little cheesy for my tastes. And it's a type of music, a type of hard rock pop music that doesn't really speak to me. And had I, if I didn't know this podcast, I probably would never listen to this. But because it's Bob Lefsetz, I think there's got to be something here. Then I start listening to some of these songs. I turn the videos off and I just play a few of these songs and I'm thinking, wow, this guy is a pretty intensively great songwriter. Again, not in a genre that I particularly appreciate, but you listen to his songs and you appreciate the fact that 
there's a reason this guy has the most number one Billboard rock songs in the history of the Billboard mainstream rock chart. He has 18 number one songs in the 40-year history of the chart. And so again, this is what's interesting about it is, here's a band I wouldn't typically be interested in or have even heard of. And yet, it makes me appreciate this guy's craft. It makes me appreciate the fact that Maybe he's not cool. Maybe he's not on the cover of all the magazines. But man, I'll tell you, he's got a hell of a career. He sells a hell of a lot of of, uh, concert tickets. And his music is followed by millions of people around the world and still growing, which he talks about in the podcast. And the one before that was with Fred Rosen, who famously uh, took over Ticketmaster in 1983. And I think for the next 30 years or something, really presided over Ticketmaster and made it what it is. Now, Ticketmaster is this punching bag. Everybody sort of reflexively thinks, oh, Ticketmaster, bad. What's great about this interview is that Fred Rosen explains how Ticketmaster is always, and and if it wasn't Ticketmaster, if Ticketmaster went away, if they broke up Ticketmaster, well, guess what? The next ticketing company would be as hated Nobody hates the act. Nobody hates the building. Nobody hates the manager. Nobody hates the fans, but everybody hates Ticketmaster. Because it's the whipping boy. It's the most unpopular entity in the rock business. And he makes the really interesting point in this podcast that, you know, no one gets pissed off when a box at the Super Bowl costs $2 million. No one gets pissed off when courtside tickets for Knicks or Lakers games cost tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. No one, no, that's not an outrage moment. But when people can't get their Taylor Swift tickets or when the Bruce Springsteen tickets are priced at $485, people freak out and the Senate investigates. Why? (laughs) And he makes this point that it's because it's emotional. No one has the, uh, no one has the expectation that they have a right to go see a sports team, but everyone has the expectation that they have the right to a Taylor Swift ticket. And he talks in this thing very succinctly about how he would have done the release and how they could have uh, scheduled the, the, the sale of Taylor Swift's concert in such a manner that prevented the huge catastrophe that occurred. So from career sort of retrospection to really intelligent people talking about fascinating aspects of the entertainment business. This is like my go-to podcast that I really, really look forward to each week. And I don't like everyone that he always has on. And I'm not always interested in every single guest, just like you're probably not interested in every single movie I talk about here. But if you like the kind of stuff that I kind of like, if you are interested in any of these bands, um, you can scroll through here. And certainly he's got a who's who of the music business. You can learn a lot a lot, a lot about the entertainment business and a lot about life, I think, from listening to the Bob Left Sets podcast. So I wanted to praise that in the hopes that you'll check it out. I'm recording this uh, a week or so after I recorded what you just listened to because I had a funny update that happened literally as I was finishing up recording the episode that you just listened to. So I was just praising the Bob Lefsetz podcast and talking particularly about the Fred Rosen interview. Fred, of course, as you just heard, former CEO of Ticketmaster, kind of a legend in the music business and the foil for, you know, many people looking for a villain in the rock and roll concert landscape. There's a lot of funny and amusing Fred Rosen stories. If you listen to the to the, his episode of the Left Sets podcast, I think you'll understand that he's an extremely colorful figure and a really good storyteller. So as a fan of the Bob Left Sets podcast, I frequently shoot emails off to Bob, uh, as many of his listeners do. And every so often he'll print uh, on his blog a mailbag of responses to to the episodes. And of course, being me, one of my dreams and ambitions, albeit however small, uh, is to be featured in the Bob Lefsetz mailbag amongst a who's who of actually notable people, since I'm not notable in the world of rock and roll music, the way Bob Lefsetz and many of his listeners are. So if you look in the letters column, there's always like a who's who of either artists, 
uh, really well-known managers, uh, big time executives. I mean, everybody within the industry listens to and reads this guy. So of course my ambition is to be published in the letters column. Anyway, so I jotted off a quick note to Bob Lefsetz, uh, just saying that I really enjoyed the Fred Rosen episode. And in fact, Fred had talked about sort of wrestling with this particular business deal. I can't remember what it was. And he said, you know, he's getting a lot of different advice. And it occurred to him that the only thing he really needed to think about was like, what's best for the people who work with him? What's best for his employees? And I'd been having an issue with uh, a network that we deal with that was similar. And I was getting a lot of different advice from different agents and uh, lawyers and things like this about what the right thing to do was. And I was populating my own mind with various uh, avenues of recourse and all this kind of stuff. And I was a bit confused as to what the best course of action was. But hearing the Fred Rosen uh, episode, he has a very funny kind of storytelling way where he's talking about having a conflict, a business conflict with someone who um, in his mind is sort of doing him wrong. And he has a very kind of questioning conversational approach, which is kind of very New York. He's kind of like, let me ask you a question. What would you say if, and he sort of posits things in a way that causes the other person to answer the question that he's posing and in them answering the question, it's kind of providing a pathway towards what resolution he, Fred Rosen sort of wants. So anyway, Anyway, I just wrote this brief note to Bob saying, as I typically do, like, I really enjoyed this episode. I got a lot. I got a lot out of it. I think people another thing that he really talks about in the in the episode, which I'm raving about, I understand, is that there's a lot of things that people really don't want to know about and ticketing and who to blame and concert ticketing is one of them. And it just occurred to me that in the world we're living in, where there's so much outrage culture, this idea that we should probably pay a little more attention to the things that we don't really want to know about things we think we hold so firmly, you know, because when you have a fully circular grasp of the possible issues at play, maybe only then can you really understand your part in a situation, someone else's part in a situation, whatever it may be. So anyway, I jot off this quick little note. Uh, to Bob Lefsetz, which of course, I don't know Bob Lefsetz. He doesn't know me. He's never replied to any of these emails that I send. And so I jot off this note and I'm doing something else, wrapping up the re recording of that podcast. And uh, in fact, making a phone call about that business sort of issue that I'd been wrestling with. Anyway, while I was on the phone dealing with that business issue, I got another call on my cell phone from a number I didn't recognize in Santa Monica, California. Now, I thought it was tangentially related to the business I was talking about, this issue I was having. I thought it was a call from someone who had been involved in this particular production. So anyway, I finished what I was doing and I go to my voicemail and it's Fred Rosen, <laughs> who doesn't know me from a hole in the wall. Uh, Fred Rosen. Oh, so what happened was <laughs> Fred Rosen leaves me this voicemail and he says, and this is again, like, you know, this is like 15 minutes after I sent this email to Bob Lefsetz. And I'm not going to play the email. I'm not going to play the voicemail here because I haven't asked Fred if that's okay. But basically he leaves me a voicemail and he says, Hey Jason, it's Fred Rosen. Uh, Bob forwarded me your email. And I just wanted to say, you know, he's went on to say some nice things about it. Uh, he said, anyway, if you want to give me a call, here's my number. He leaves his number. So of course I'm calling Fred Rosen. I mean, how often do you get to sort of hear uh, classic like rock and roll stories involving the Rolling Stones and Pearl Jam and all these conflicts that he was presiding over in his you know 20 or 30 years at Top Ticketmaster. So I call Fred Rosen back and he picks up the phone. I say, Fred, it's Jason Silo. You just left me a voicemail about my email response to Bob. He said, yeah, Jason, how are you? He proceeds to ask me, because I had mentioned in the in the email to Bob Lefsetz, you know, I had, I had said that I was kind of wrestling with this business. He goes, tell me about your business problem. <laughs> so I tell him about the business problem and he shares some related anecdotes with me uh, that he didn't share on the podcast that are unprintable, probably. And we just had a nice chat and wow, I thought this is such an important lesson, right? 
I mean, just because someone appears on a podcast or someone has a big career or someone is important within an industry, yes, there's a tendency to put them on a pedestal, you know, to think that they're this, that, or the other, both good and bad. But it's such an important lesson to me to realize that, you know, part of the reason of his success probably are these small personal touches, which are genuine, right? Like, again, I'm not anyone within his industry. I can't do anything for him. He mentions in the podcast that he would often call like 10 of the letters that he got in a given week in Ticketmaster. And, you know, he was getting inundated with all of these responses from the podcast, which he says, you know, uh, he couldn't believe, he said in the voicemail that he left me, he couldn't believe the response a podcast appearance was getting because he told so many fascinating and funny and hilarious stories. And uh, he took the time to pick up the phone and call just to nobody who had happened to email in and say, hey, I got a lot out of that and helped me with this thing. And he wanted to hear about what, the, what was the issue that I was struggling with. So uh, I just had to share that. Maybe if you listen to the Bob Left Sets podcast too, you will also uh, find yourself talking to someone who appears on the podcast. I then subsequently emailed Bob to give him an update on my previous hopeful mailbag appearance letter, which I was I was sure in a slam dunk, uh, you know, that that would appear. Now I'm like, you got to print these two right back to back. I mean, how often do you have a funny story of one of your guests calling up one of your listeners and them having kind of a funny brief connection on the telephone and talking for a bit? So I did email that to Bob. I don't know if I'll make it into a mailbag. There hasn't been a uh, Fred Rosen mailbag since the episode. And he's got another episode out now with Willie Nile, who's another great uh, example of the Left Sets podcast, just this lifer musician who you kind of maybe have heard of, but never quite broke through, but has the respect and the admiration of people like Bruce Springsteen um, and other, you know, way better known, more successful musicians. He's got a really fascinating life story and uh, such an interesting guy and a good example of the type of things you can hear. I can't believe I'm spending all this time hyping someone else's podcast. I should really be hyping my own. Uh, but anyway, there you have it. So I thought I'd add that addendum because I thought it was a funny postscript to my, to my ode to the Bob Left Sets podcast. So now I've got a podcast episode where I reference the podcast. You see part of my plan here, right? Like maybe my dream one day in life, I'll get to be interviewed by Bob Left Sets on his own podcast. I'll have to accomplish more to earn that. Okay. Anyway, that's it for now. And now I'll go back to the ending of the pod. That's all I've got for you this week. So I can't recommend that you go see Titanic 4K 3D WTF. But if you do, let me know what your thoughts are. And I will catch you next time on the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. <laughs>